Did you know that the emissions of the maritime sector falls outside the scope of the Paris Agreement? This is the Lovers of Exchange podcast. I'm your host, Jimmy Gia. Today's guest is James Mitchell. As a principal at the Rocky Mountain Institute, he was critical in the creation of the Poseidon Principles, an agreement aligning finance in the shipping sector for the reduction of carbon. Season 3 is brought to you by a generous grant from the Skoll Center for Social Entrepreneurship at the Said Business School, Oxford University. If you're new to this podcast, please don't forget to subscribe. Now, let's listen to how James, a classically trained cellist, reflect on his experiences in helping pull together global stakeholders to agree on a climate goal. James, thank you so much for joining us today. It's a pleasure to get a chance to chat. Likewise. Thanks so much for having me. Let me start by asking you about how many frequent flyer miles does your cello have right now? That's a, that's a great question. I, I've taken my cello halfway around the world with me in the past year, though it actually remains stranded in, uh, in Southeast Asia, where I moved at the very beginning of the pandemic as I evacuated Jakarta and, uh, and came to London to, to hunker down. So uh, enough miles to get you halfway around the world. And I know certainly as a cellist, the travel, especially internationally, is especially difficult given how large it is and how hard it is to get it into planes. One of the things about being a musician is that we have to keep in mind the super details of each individual notes, but as well as the overarching story and the overarching phrase of the entire piece. So how does being a studied cellist get you into working in sustainable finance? How does that transition happen? That's a, that's a really good question and, and one maybe I've been waiting to be asked for, for quite a long time. And I'm, I'm actually still asking myself the same, the same question. I started studying music at the Kansas City Conservatory of Music. I found music incredibly fulfilling. I worked as a music, uh, musician as I was studying and, and afterwards. I also found that I, I needed something else. So I, I ended up pursuing two degrees at once, one music and, and one environmental studies. Partly due to interest and partly due to injury, actually, from playing too much cello, I very much went down the, the route of environmental policy. I pursued a master's in Oxford, where I, I really went looking for my area of expertise. I knew that climate was, was the issue of great importance to me, uh, but I also knew that specialization was extremely necessary in order to, to really contribute to some degree of change, whatever that means. Whilst in Oxford, I found that area, and that, that area is sustainable finance, where I really continue to work today. In terms of how a musician, how being a musician maybe sort of helps to, to actually working in sustainable finance, I think exactly as you mentioned, it does sort of teach you to understand the details. It does teach you to be incredibly well prepared for every engagement, but it also teaches you to, to, to remember the big, the big picture. I have to say there's one, there's one other thing, which is being a musician, especially a chamber musician, helps a tremendous amount with, with interpersonal relationship. You're contributing to creating something with two or three or four other people. You have to learn how to pursue something with passion, um, you know, with intellect, but, but ultimately to kind of co-create it. That is something that I think is, is really fundamental. Certainly the listening to other stakeholders is something we'll get into quite a bit later on in this conversation. Perhaps one of my favorite quotes from the movie Amadeus was after Mozart composed a particular piece, the listener said, ah, there was too many notes. And yet when we think of how complicated sustainable finance is on a global stage, there are a lot of details and a lot of notes and somehow being able to stitch it all together. 
what got you interested in energy and climate policy in the first place? What was the impetus to apply to the sustainable finance program at Oxford? In essence, when did you first get exposed to these ideas that made you want to go and pursue it? It's a great question. I have to say, I give full credit to the many sort of mentors that I've, I've had along the way. One of those is a woman called Molly Davies, who was my undergraduate advisor at the University of Missouri, Kansas City. Molly pushed me a lot to various projects throughout undergrad. And she also actually suggested that I, I apply to the, the geography department in Oxford, where the Smith School sits and the sustainable finance program sits. So it's, it's to credit, credit to her that I, I made that application. And, and really, I, I discovered the, the concept of sustainable finance while in Oxford. I had done some preparatory reading, which had kind of pushed me in that direction prior to arriving. But uh, that's where I, where I really discovered it and, and began sort of developing that interest more. Now that you've been in sustainable finance, how do you frame it? How do you make sense of it? The joke that I, I often tell is, you know, someday in the future, if I am teaching a course on sustainable finance, I, I will just tell the, the class at the outset what the exam question is, which is, does sustainable finance exist? Uh, it's, it's a bit tongue in cheek, but it also gets to the heart of the issue, which is pretty much the whole world has accepted that, that decarbonization is an imperative. And pretty much the whole world at this point has accepted that every stakeholder has to play a role, including private financial institutions. However, it is really hard to do something that's additional using or via financial markets. It's just really hard. Markets are liquid. You know, they're mostly just thinking about risk. If you want to add in this other ingredient of impact or sort of contribution beyond business as usual, you have to really think it through in terms of how you're going to deliver that. I think these questions are being asked time and time again across the globe right now, be it as the, the EU sustainable finance taxonomy is designed, or creating the Poseidon principles, or creating the next version of that, that agreement in the, in the steel sector. That's the difficulty. And I think essentially that's the question that is being asked time and time again as this concept becomes more and more codified and more and more demonstrated. Finance is ultimately just an enabling sector because it's the market creation and the movement of liquidity and the movement of funds. It's not so much the real economy, which is where the carbon footprint comes from, whether that's steel, cement, so on and so forth. So when we say that a financial sector is aligned to Paris or aligned to climate outcomes, what do we actually mean when we say that? That's a question that's being asked again, time and time again, across the financial sector. A number of frameworks are being developed to measure the alignment of different types of financial portfolios with different types of climate trajectories or climate targets. So there's a, there's a number of different ways to align or ways to measure. But essentially, I think the simplest definition, definition of it is that the emissions associated with some type of financial portfolio are aligned with a climate target. That concept, I will, I will mention, has, has been challenged a little bit because of what you, um, what you mentioned initially, which is it's not really the, the emissions of the, the buildings of that financial institution that matter. It's the emissions of the, the industries and the companies that they might finance that matter far more. So that gets into a conversation of maybe we should be talking about not only are those, those emissions aligned of your, your portfolio today, but are you engaging with your clients to make them more aligned? Or are you designing specific types of financial products to make your portfolio more aligned as well? For example, sustainability-linked finance. So it's a, it's a complicated topic, but I think there's a simple definition of just, you know, are your portfolio emissions aligned with the climate trajectory, the climate target? 
it makes me think of other service provider sectors as well, whether they're lawyers or accountants, people who are basically there to make businesses flow, they themselves have a very small carbon footprint, but yet they're the enablers of other people who have the large carbon footprints and trying to figure out where those roles are as well within the entire broader economy. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think we've seen a tremendous shift really since the creation of the equator principles, which I note, I think, in the sort of the history of sustainable finance, these equator principles launched in, I believe, 2003. It kind of ushered in the, the first wave of, of recognizing that the financial sector didn't just exist as sort of a spigot, you know, a spigot of capital, just an enabler. Um, it was actually something that had agency of its own. And through the introduction of topics like climate risk, climate alignment, we've seen the financial sector itself actually claim that agency. Um, and that's in part, I think, in response to stakeholder pressure, probably also in response to systemic risk as well. It's a really interesting transition. This is something that I have heard a couple of times. Do you believe that a portfolio, like a bank's portfolio or something, should reflect the real economy? Or should a bank's portfolio be something that then has agency to create that real economy? This is the this gets to the heart of the issue. And and of course, as a director at the Center for Climate Land Finance, I think that every stakeholder in the real economy has a role to bring the real economy in line with the societal imperative of decarbonization. I fully accept that there may well be limitations to what can be done. For example, fiduciary duty or interpretation of fiduciary duty might limit either explicitly or just by interpretation what an asset manager feels it can do. Profitability, also going to be a limitation. You know, Climate action via private financial markets or even the private sector is by nature limited, which means it's part of the solution, but probably not the whole solution. Nonetheless, there's a role to play, I think, for every corner of the economy, including uh, the financial sector. Well, you know, when we talk about strategy within a company and trying to align a Procter & Gamble unilever to climate change, we talk about how the sustainability department has to be the entire company because that entire company has to come along essentially for that journey. And what you're reflecting is that's true for the entire economy as well. It's not just isolated to individual companies. Yeah, and I, and I think you hit on a really good point. I think I think one of the transitions that I've seen even in the past five, six, seven years is the transition of sustainability roles. So from communications roles to strategy roles, I see that in, in corporates as well as in the financial sector. I think that is an indication of the seriousness with which you know sustainability is taken. Is is where does that role sit, and how well is it integrated throughout the firm? Um, so I think I think you're spot on. Absolutely. How does your team then at the Rocky Mountain Institute Center for Climate Aligned Finance, from which you're the principal, one of the principals, how do you drive to these market-based solutions for climate change? Well, so I should say that so the Center for Climate Aligned Finance exists to do a couple of things. Um, so when we think about fully activating the you know, private financial sector in support of climate ambition or sort of climate targets, climate goals, we think about the transformation of firms. So we think about what does the system need to look like to enable, enable firms to be more proactive? How do firms need to think about transition from the top down? And then the, what I think of as that, the, really the pointiest end of the, of the spear is, how do firms need to think about specific sectors? So sectors of the real economy. And this is where you can get down to real problem solving um, and, and really thinking through what is the role of, of a lender or lessor or guarantor in the shipping sector to actually proactively support decarbonization um, within the bounds of how industry works today. So 
I'll start actually at the, at the sector level. So this is a core focus of, of what the Center for Climate Aligned Finance does, is we seek to build uh, what are called climate-aligned finance agreements for the major capital providers to real economy sectors. So climate-aligned finance agreements are um, agreements of you know, maybe their lenders, lessors, guarantors, other types of financial institutions to align their portfolios with explicit climate targets, to measure that in the same way, to report that, to actively um, you know, use the measures that they have available to themselves, be that client engagement, be that sustainability-linked finance, you know, be that leaving some clients. They have to interpret this on their, um, on their own ways uh, to actually better align their portfolios over time. We think the best way to do that is to think about this at, at the real economy level. We and our colleagues across RMI were, I think, instrumental in setting up something of an accelerator vehicle for agreements like this and, and agreements for different parts of the real economy. This accelerator vehicle is, is called the Mission Possible Partnership. Mission Possible Partnership is, is, a, is a collaboration, is an organization of 12 different organizations and over 400 corporates to do the things that are necessary to, to decarbonize real economy sectors. The first one that we're, we're really active in right now at the center is steel. So steel production is about 7% of global emissions. And, and the center is actively building a climate line finance agreement for that sector. We hope to move to other sectors very soon. We expect to start work in a, in a couple others this year. I should mention, I'll just finish up briefly. The center also works thinking through questions uh, at the firm and the system level. So how do you successfully transform a firm? What are the best practices for doing that and for really accelerating that transformational change that's necessary to kind of reorient the role of, of the firm itself from something that is only profit-making to something that is profit-making, but also serving the needs of, of a broader set of stakeholders, which is, for many, a fundamental redesign. And that, by nature, entails some, some systemic questions as well. The center is uh, working across all of these threads. Uh, certainly an exciting time, I think, to, to, to work in sustainable finance to kind of write the rule book for, for what it should look like. Do you find more interest in Europe, in the US, in Asia, or is it a global interest in this work that you're doing? Absolutely. It's a, it's a great question. Um, so our, we have a set of founding partners, which are American, and we have a set of strategic partners, which are Canadian. However, we are active. We are actively working with um, different parts of the financial sector in North America, in Europe, and and many active in Asia. I think it probably won't come as a as a huge surprise. Europe is is sort of at the, the forefront of, of net zero commitments today. If you sort of look at the list of firms, you know, it's, it, there's many more Europeans than, than others. I, I think that there, we're we're seeing this concept of, of climate alignment or climate aligned finance come to North America, and so we're we're seeing a number of, of commitments there. I think you can kind of assume that the number of commitments being made does probably track with, with interest and sort of activity in the center. Nonetheless, we're, we're sort of active in, in Asia as well in terms of who we're, who we're working with. So some interest, um, though the, the concept is uh, um, not necessarily completely global. It's certainly more mature in the EU and Europe in general. And perhaps we could say one of the early examples of these partnerships that you're putting together was the Poseidon principles and pulling that together that you mentioned a moment ago. Tell us about the Poseidon principles. What was the impetus behind developing them? So the Poseidon principles are the, the first climate aligned finance agreement, and they are focused on the shipping sector, so the maritime shipping sector. 
This agreement aligns about $185 billion of senior shipping debt, or well over 40% of senior shipping debt globally, with climate targets. That is, there's a group of, of over 25 now of the leading um, shipping lenders, lessors, guarantors that are actively working with their clients to align the emissions of these portfolios with um, a climate target that's specified by an organization called the IMO, or the International Maritime Organization, the UN body that regulates shipping and they're under shipping emissions. The impetus for the Poseidon Principles you know, it's a, it's a question that I think ties into this broader change of expectations of the financial sector. It was the case of genuine interest of a few leaders in the financial sector and bringing the right set of stakeholders together to build something that was, that was truly new and, and transformative for that sector, um, which, which became the Poseidon Principles. So it was a bit of the right people in the right place and, and a bit of, well, I should say, a lot of, a lot of the, the hard work that it took to, to make it happen in, in practice. Was the maritime sector themselves involved in the stakeholders and in the conversations, you know, the ports, the shipping companies, so on and so forth? It's a, it's a good question. And, and I think to, to create an atmosphere of ambition, you need the right mix of stakeholders. Shipping itself, I think at the time, so this is in the run-up to 2019, so 2017, 2018, um, was getting quite a lot of flack for you know, a lack of climate ambition. I think that has begun to change, especially since the Poseidon Principles. So to create an atmosphere of ambition in which we could craft this agreement, it did take a mix of, um, in this case, lenders, uh, owners. So these are, these are ship owners, as well as customers of ship owners, and then a host of experts and, and some legal support. So it was, it was a close and it was a tight-knit group that we had, adapt, we had to adapt to make sure that it, it was clear that there would be support for this agreement from the necessary corners of, of industry. And because of the success of that effort, this concept of climate alignment has now been adopted by other stakeholders in the shipping sector. So there's, there's now a sister agreement called the Sea Cargo Charter. This is for the owners of, of cargo goods that hire vessels and move them around the world. They use the same methodology and have pledged to align their, their operations with that same climate aligned trajectory. So you have a, a really interesting kind of ecosystem of initiatives developing in, in shipping today. You mentioned earlier taking these sectorial approaches where you do one principles for the finance sector, one principle for the cargo sector, so on and so forth. Why not do one just for the entire maritime sector? Mm. I mean, that would be great, wouldn't it? Um, <laughs> it'd be a lot easier maybe, or maybe it'd be a lot harder. Um, so I think the answer is there are very specific needs of stakeholders. So in the context of, of creating the Poseidon principles, you know, it became apparent that there was just no data available on ship-level emissions, vessel-level emissions. So we had to create a legally defensible way to make sure that there was access to vessel-level emissions. And that tied into regulatory processes at the IMO. So whenever we think about decarbonizing the global economy, we actually have to think about some real nuts and bolts of how the economy operates. And that comes down to usually the, the same barriers, which are actually kind of basic, right? It's data. It's methodology. So can we measure in a way that everyone agrees with? It's pathways. So pathways are, do we understand the sort of various techno-economic pathways for decarbonizing by mid-century? And frankly, it's, it's the need for some form of sort of safety in numbers, right? Like we're talking about competitive markets and what we're trying to do is make climate pre-competitive. By nature of trying to do that, you create the risk of leakage, create you know competitive competitive risk. So you have to um, you have to build a coalition that that's willing to say you know we're no longer going to compete on climate. We get it. 
Doing that, I think, is very difficult to do, say, for a whole sector, you know, every, every stakeholder. Doing that at a, a slightly more manageable scale is, is, I think, a better way to go about it, or maybe a more realistic way to go about it at this time. And in some ways, it's managing the group of people that are natural competitors against each other and saying, how can we, as who are trying to get to the same outcome, the same business, can do our sector slightly better and give them the metric that makes sense for them? That's exactly right. That, that, that is exactly right. And it, it comes to the challenge of, or sort of demonstrates the challenge of how difficult it is to mobilize players in the private sector, right? Uh, you know, when, when commitments are made, I, I think we should take them at take them at face value. But the next thing we have to do is ask, what are your implementation actions, right? How is your business model going to change? Those are the types of conversations that, that need to start happening. And really, the, the goal of, of such initiatives has to be to enable those conversations and to kind of give them a reference point, right? Something that's very clear to set expectations um, for those conversations. You know, given that there were, what, 15 original signatories for the Poseidon Principles when it got started... How much of the entire maritime sector did you have to engage with in order to come up with those 15 in the financial sector and really hone in on the constraints of that one sector? So we developed, we wrote the principles with four. Um, there are four, four banks involved. And we had our larger, a larger reference group as well. Um, we launched the principles, I believe, with 11, and they've since, since grown to over 25. Um, ship finance is relatively consolidated, so you, you don't need thousands of stakeholders. You know, you actually just need, you know, tens, <laughs> which is which is why we actually targeted ship finance um, for a concept like this. Um, in terms of how we got this concept off the ground, however, it was quite literally the process of going and finding global consensus. Um, after holding some initial consultations in London, uh, where I'm based, it became very clear that there was a willingness to do something on climate in ship finance, but a need to understand that there was a global consensus on the willingness to do something. We hosted a series of consultations for senior ship financiers. We held those in Singapore and London and New York City. And that is the process that we, we went through to, um, to make sure that there, there was actually a, enough buy-in. Once we established that, we were then able to form the working group to write the principles and then start the process of recruitment. Um, so I, I have to say, it was a lot of uh, frequent flyer miles, um, several trips, frankly, around the world to do it. But that's what it took. I think the good news is the concept of sector-specific climate-aligned finance agreements is now very, very well established. And we're seeing a demand for solutions like this directly from banks and other types of you know, financial stakeholders. So I think the next one's going to be easier, or I hope the next one's going to be easier. And hopefully the next one after that will be easier yet. Hopefully, they do become easier over with time. One of the things I was fascinated by with the Poseidon Principles is, frankly, how simple it is. Unlike the built environment sector, where you get pages and pages of data and different indicators and KPIs, for the Poseidon Principles, there's just one, and that's the annual efficiency ratio, which is just the measure of carbon dioxide per deadweight ton per mile. In some ways, it makes me think of, on the commercial passenger side, the passenger miles traveled. So how did the group settle on that to be the metric, the mm -hmm. only metric, in fact, that the entire portfolio is held accountable for? Yeah, the honest answer is there was a lot of deliberation on this point. There are a number of different metrics that could have been used to measure the carbon intensity of, of moving cargo around the world. And we had to take a number of factors into account. One of those is, is it effective? You know, does it actually measure something that's useful and you know, actually tell us something about climate? 
And then the others are really related to, can we actually implement using this metric? So is this a metric that's going to create confidentiality concerns? Is it going to create challenges for data access? So we had to kind of go like, sort of walk through what does implementation look like with AER, as you've described, or what would implementation look like with a, another metric called EEOI? Um, I'll, I'll sort of spare you um, uh, of the others, but uh, you know, we, we had to walk through this with multiple different metrics and, and sort of work out what was going to work best. The other thing that I think I is useful to mention here is there are a lot of other things that we could have included in this agreement, including non-greenhouse gas pollutants, including ship breaking, and a host of other things. Though there was a very conscious decision made by uh, the chair and, and the vice chair of the working group, uh, they were from City and, and Sakjin, to keep it simple um, at the outset. And then instead to just build in a governance mechanism that if the signatories themselves wish to do so, this agreement can expand to other to other factors, be that chip breaking, be that be that something else. So that that may happen in the future, um, which I, which I think would be great. But, but we started we started simple. It's fascinating how you could have chosen a litany of metrics and just said you have to report to fifty, but then say mm-hmm. you chose one, right? Do you think that decision to choose just one? set the Poseidon principles aside from the other climate initiatives out there. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Because it's, it was a measurement, it was a simple measurement, it was an effective measurement, it was pegged to, to, to real climate outcomes. And, you know, there's a, there's a whole sort of reporting apparatus that we've built to make sure that they're, the reporting is accurate and there's, there's a lot of trust between signatories. I think what we've also seen, and, th- and this is a really important point, and I think it's one, one that's very supportive of, of simplicity is, it doesn't tell you everything, right? It's, it's a backward-looking metric based on on-vessel data, data reported from vessels themselves. It does not give you forward-looking information. Like there's a trajectory that you can use to, to sort of ask the ship owner, how are you going to stay climate-aligned? But it, it doesn't provide you some detailed analysis of whether that ship owner is going to be able to meet that curve. What it's created, however, is a demand for that information and a market for that information. And so there are now other providers thinking about how can we estimate AER? How can we estimate or project AER into the future? How can we use techno-economic analysis to kind of say which ship owners are going to be able to you know, stay climate aligned? And it's also led to which, what I think are the most important questions, which are what are the absolutely crucial milestones uh, for decarbonization that I, that I need to understand? And this is a new conversation for ship finance. And now I would actually hazard a guess that just about every ship finance department knows that by 2030, we need zero carbon vessels on the water. That's a very clear marker. And that's something you can, you can use to sort of engage clients. So yes, it's a simple metric. It doesn't tell you everything, but because it's comparable and it sort of puts everyone's skin in the game, it has created a market for kind of the other metrics and the other information you need to really understand how to play that most proactive role with your clients. The fact that it's forecastable makes it so that way you can start making decisions about it, capital investment decisions about it, and knowing what 2030 might look like. And I was really impressed by just how simple it is. It's just a straight line down and that you can see where you are within that straight line. And if you're on it or not, the alignment is obvious. Through that entire process of bringing people together and coming up with this, what would you consider your most important skill in getting Poseidon Principles launched? Well, so firstly, I have to credit everyone else, right? I certainly played a role in making this happen, but there were everyone had a had a very very important role to play. Yes, so I, I think I was the voice that understood kind of all sides. So I, I understood the needs 
<laughs> the legitimate needs to maintain profitability, you know, both, both in finance and industry, but also in deeply aware and, and care deeply about climate mitigation. So I, I think I was able to kind of sit in the middle and find that that sort of leading edge of, of what's possible or that kind of, I guess, kind of the art of figuring out what's possible. I, I think, honestly, my, my sort of superpower skill there maybe was just listening, you know, being willing to put in the, put in the time to find the solution given, given the views we had at the time. Well, it was chamber music for all intents and purposes. There you go. <laughs> yeah, it was chamber music to be able to listen and look and to feel and to see how everyone else was doing in the room. That's a very kind interpretation. <laughs> Going back in slightly higher level a little bit, when you say that you're sitting in the middle of these stakeholder engagements, mm-hmm. when do you think you first noticed this interconnected web of moving parts? Do you say more? What, what do you mean? You have to have an understanding of there are people around you, and there are these many stakeholders with many different interests and things like that. When did you first notice this web of basically people that are all coming at different directions and different things? In essence, when did you decide that, oh, I can actually do something about it? It's not hmm. just this thing that's so large that it's impossible. Yeah, it's, it's actually an amazing question, and, and I think it's one that I'll, I'll actually zoom out a bit to answer, which is, so I worked at Carbon War Room, um, which is a, uh, it was a nonprofit founded by Richard Branson, which merged with RMI um, a number of years ago. By nature of the role I was in, which was oriented towards pushing energy efficiency reductions in the maritime shipping sector, I got a lot of exposure to industry and, and, and sort of saw that there was likely some progress to be made on you know, introducing sustainable finance concepts to the, to the shipping industry. That put me in a lot of Situations where I was saying uncomfortable things to to people whose livelihoods, frankly, you know, depend on the shipping sector. To people whose livelihoods depend on being able to finance the shipping sector. And so I think I, I was extremely fortunate to have that degree of exposure so early in my career to kind of understand that it is people that run the global economy. People genuinely have good motivations. I think many of us may have different narratives. And so I think once you have that, you have an understanding of where different different people are coming from, you get a sense for how to bring them together effectively. And I, and I think that was, that was actually one of the things that I think was most important was a, a deep understanding of what those narratives are and what those motivations are, and also what the, you know, the actual constraints are, how to have a pretty good understanding of the sector itself, um, to use that to, to craft the moment where the decision is made. I'll mention one other thing, which is collective decision-making is, uh, is a challenge. And it's something that has to be thought about beforehand if you if you intend to intend to do it. And it's something that can't be rushed. You you can only make collective decisions once enough in the group are are ready and, and the questions are answered. So I mentioned, you know, prior to this global consultation, we ran a series of workshops. Those were, you know, in, in Northern Europe typically. I think through that we were able to kind of bring a group or forge a shared view with a group. And there actually was a decision moment that that happened at a, at a workshop in London. Um, with, a, with a group of uh, largely Europe-based ship financiers. And it, it was sort of the moment at which the decision was made where it was agreed that something could be done and something would be done. And I, I don't remember who, but someone in that group asked a question, you know, why? You know, what's the, what's the motivator here? And it was really interesting because once we ticked through all of the, the, the real and legitimate and challenging questions around data and, and you know, methodologies and what does this mean for my clients and, and, and all of that, it then became about you know, personal motivations, kids, grandkids, things like that. So that was a, 
that was a moment that I'll, I'll certainly, I think, remember for the rest of my career, which is what's possible with collective decision making. If you can really meet people where they're coming, where they're coming from, and bring them together around the right set of facts. International waters and the oceans are perhaps the last major commons that we have left. Mm. And I know Eleanor Olstrom was a big influence on some of your thinking. So how does her work reflect in the way that the Poseidon principles were created? It's a great question. Exactly as you said, um, I have read, I think, just about everything written by, by Eleanor Ostrom. It's been many years now. And the idea is that uh, her thinking, or the, the, the pieces of her thinking that, that influenced me most, so one sort of informal systems where so in, informal systems of, of managing common pool resources, what are the traits we can observe of uh, groups um, that can, can successfully manage uh, a shared resource? It sounds like you're very familiar with Eleanor Ostrom. What she does is she rebuts the need for property rights in some cases. There's, there's clear limitations and there's a lot of examples of this not working, but there are thankfully examples which she studied where communities are able to share resources without property rights. Through that, she observed you know, some very specific things that have to, have to be the case for that to work. I'm very familiar with that research. And so <laughs> those are the things that are kind of baked into the design of the Poseidon principles. And so that, that is really just, kind of comes down to the basics, right? It's, you know, is there transparency? How are decisions made? And, you know, what happens if something goes wrong? Just kind of the basics. So I'd encourage everyone to go and read Eleanor Ostrom. The other idea is, is the idea of polycentricity. So the idea that you can actually have more than one sort of center of action. And actually, when applying it to climate, it's probably quite a good thing. So I think it can be tempting to say, ah, oh, let's, let's just create a financial sector agreement you know, every firm at the highest level is going to commit to reduce its portfolio emissions. But I think probably a better way to approach it is to recognize that it's probably useful to have different centers of, of action that are based around maybe how the real economy functions in practice rather than, you know, where financial institutions sit. For Eleanor's work, she won the Nobel Prize in economics. And the couple of conditions that she pointed out, I think they reflect quite well in how the Poseidon principles work. For one case, having very clear defined boundaries. And certainly there's a very clear definition of what the Poseidon principles are meant to do and not meant to do. Being collective choice agreement, like you said, these stakeholder groups coming together, the monitoring of it through the metric, as well as the resolution of conflicts and the local autonomy. And these properties, basically, they make themselves very, very clear within the Poseidon principles. Was there something about the maritime sector itself that made it a viable pilot case for this sort of an application of Eleanor Ostrom's work? Yeah, there's two things. And so one of those was that maritime emissions sit outside of the Paris Agreement. They sit instead under what's called the IMO Climate Agreement. There's a very clear target underpinning that agreement, which is 50% absolute emissions reduction by 2050 based on a 2008 baseline. Because we had that, and because we don't have to navigate a sort of host of NDCs, nationally determined contributions, it was just very simple to say, great, that's our target. That's what we're working with. The other piece of this is the maritime sector is incredibly decentralized. Doing anything in that sector is, is just difficult regarding you know, set, setting of any type of standard. However, ship lending and leasing is, is actually very centralized. There's a hand, as I mentioned, there's tens of institutions that do this. You can get the great majority of, of senior shipping debt, for example, just through you know, bringing those institutions into, a, into an agreement. So in that sense, the structure of the industry being centralized in one way, it made a good, a good place to, to start with an application like this. 
it's a very relevant point, I think, for working in, in future sectors and actually ties to, to why we played a role in creating the Mission Possible Partnership. So the partnership, as I, as I mentioned, is a, is a collaboration between 12 organizations and you know, over 400 corporates. These numbers will continue to grow. There's actually a very simple four-step process around which all the partners organize. And that's you know, forging a shared vision, creating a net zero roadmap. So this is actually a very clear modeled roadmap to net zero that is open book and has industry backing and input, which is very crucial. And then hanging various types of agreements onto that roadmap. Agreements could include climate line finance agreements. They could include green procurement agreements to create a, uh, you know, an incentive to, to build a green steel plant or, or something else. And then finally, the fourth step is, is supporting implementation. As we, as we, as we know, you know, we, we learn more every day and there's a need to sort of keep pathways up to date or keep roadmaps up to date. There's a need to support the implementation of various agreements. There's a need to, you know, expand networks and expand signatories. So, um, you know, the work will continue even once the commitments are made. I, I mentioned that four step process because of that second step, which is forging that net zero roadmap, which gets us around the problem of navigating a host of NDCs. You know, once you say, okay, that the leaders in this sector have bought into this roadmap, everyone accepts that it's going to take a mix of policy, of commitments by corporates, of actions by financial institutions to get there. It then becomes so much easier to, to build global agreements around that pathway. You know, that net zero roadmap reminds me of uh, the Intel semiconductor roadmap that basically for about 20, 30 years kept the entire semiconductor industry on Moore's law of doubling transistor density every for 18 months, something like that. There seems to be hints of that, of convening the industry around one specific metric. One of the key things of Ostrom's work is the clearly defined boundary. So when you're trying to pull these 400 multitude of stakeholders together, how do you define the boundaries? How do you delineate the boundaries that the, the subgroups mm. will then work in? I mean, you have to take it on a sector by sector basis and then a stakeholder by stakeholder basis. So just to give you an example of what this looks like in practice, the center has a very clear process for assessing sectors. So we call it our diagnostic and our, our market assessment, which is very boring words, but it's actually pretty interesting stuff. We map all the financial flows in a sector. So take aviation, steel, cement, aluminum. We map those flows so we understand them. We also map the stakeholders to get a sense of what's happening in the sector, what methodologies exist, how does the industry work? Etc. We then use that to kind of figure out what those boundaries need to be. And so does it make sense, for example, in aviation to build a climate line finance agreement for just lenders or should we include some combination of lenders and lessors? And then it's a question of, do we also need to think about private equity? And then, of course, there, there's clear boundaries around what's the scope of the metric, which is just really important in sectors like steel. You can go down rabbit holes for the rest of your life, I think, kind of working out what the true emissions are behind iron ore, or you can start somewhere, which is good enough, which captures most of the information, and then make sure that other stakeholders are working on the, you know, the, the crucial bits of data that, that might be needed for you know, mobilizing other parts of the, of the economy to, to support the decarbonization of, of mining, for example. It starts to ask the question, what other sectors has the same properties as the maritime sector that you can start applying these Poseidon principles to? And we've mentioned steel, we, you've mentioned mining a couple. What are some of the early sectors you're looking at which have similar properties to maritime that we apply the same methodology? It's a really, it's a really good question. And it's one that we are 
actually in the process of answering. So maybe I can, I can tell you sort of what are we looking at? What sectors are we sort of assessing to get a sense of that? We're assessing the utility sector, the oil and gas sector, the steel sector, as you know, we're actually actively working in already, aluminum production, cement, chemicals, aviation, heavy road transport. In terms of you know, what sector has the exact same you know, attributes as the maritime sector, I can, I can pretty confidently say no sectors have, that, have the same attributes. I, I think every sector has its own challenges. And they actually come back to the, the sort of barriers that I mentioned at the outset, which are, what's the data that's available? Can we trust it? Is it expensive? What's the methodology that's fit for purpose? You know, what is the, what's the correct boundary as we think about sort of overcoming this challenge of competition? And you know, is there buy-in? behind the, the sort of pathways to net zero in this, in this industry? And is there a clear ask that the financial sector can make of its clients in, in taking serious steps towards, towards that pathway? I can say with confidence that that answer looks a little different in every sector. I think in utilities, fear that I think asset managers probably have a more active role to play. That's going to take, a, I think, a, a far deeper understanding of how that sector operates and how the investments it's making today in assets actually translate to whether or not they're thinking at all about the targets that they're setting. In oil and gas, you know, this is a sector that is, you could probably build several different agreements for. The emissions of the oil and gas sector are, are highest, right? Both in terms of the burning of the oil and gas, but also in terms of the, the operational emissions, in, in particular the methane emissions associated with oil and gas production. Just to give you a fact that's going to be a little shocking, fugitive methane emissions from oil and gas production are greater than all industrial emissions. I mean, that, that fact alone tells us that there is something to do there. What that looks like, what the scope is of that, is another question. And, and it's one that we've tried quite hard to answer, and it's very difficult. So I think we'll continue, continue working on that. Certainly one of the biggest differences, I think, between mm. maritime and oil and gas specifically is that maritime is a consumer of fossil fuels, whereas oil and gas is a producer of fossil fuels. And just that role in the supply chain shifts the roles and responsibilities of how Absolutely. To and, it's, and it's one that I think the entire community is, is, is kind of struggling with. You know, there's a, there's a huge effort right now, an investor sort of investor engagement effort, in particular with, with IOCs or the, the major oil companies to get them to set targets and to plan to transition. Quick clarification, what was IOC? Integrated oil company. So like a shell would be an IOC. Gotcha. What that means is a really hard question. You know, uh, a really great think tank called Carbon Tracker often comes out with a, a reminder that one in 10 companies survive transitions, ma major industry transitions. And having worked with, with many of these or some of these um, you know, IOCs before on various projects, it is genuinely a difficult task to figure out what you do next. And so, yes, I, I think it is very difficult. That being said, I think what we also know is that, particularly with IOCs, there's a lot of skill sets there that are valuable that contribute to the transition. And so I think there is probably um, a utility in asking those questions. That being said, I don't think it should take away, and I actually think it's dangerous that it takes away from operational emissions. Operational emissions are things that can be controlled. 45% of methane emissions from oil and gas production can be mitigated at, at negative cost. I mean, of course, there's market barriers, you know, keeping that from happening, but you know, these are things that can actually absolutely be done but it takes some real impetus to make them happen. One of the things that I find unique about this conversation that we've had is we've talked about how we need to go into specific sectors, come up with clearly defined boundaries, in essence, separate out components of different sectors. 
And yet there's a lot of talk about how we need more holistic solutions to be able to tackle climate change and nature and so on and so forth. How do you reconcile that tension of the more specific we can be, the more targeted and aligned we can be to this notion of holistic and everything has to be included? Honestly, I, I think there's space for everything. There's, you know, it's sort of all hands on deck is my, is my sort of simple response. I think we have to look at the specific use cases. So if we are talking about the metals and mining desk, there are some very specific use cases there. And I think it's worthwhile creating very specific methodologies. If we're talking about a firm that wants to materially contribute to the, the low carbon transition, there is absolutely room to think through a, a range of approaches, so long as some of those don't, approaches don't take away from the most fundamental things that can be done. Yeah, it's a, it's a bit of a general response. I, I think in general, there's, there's room, but we should never create space for obfuscation. This is a tough transition, and you know, we have to think carefully about the, the frameworks we set up. Last question. To a student or early career professional, what skill or expertise do you encourage them to learn? Mm, that's, that's a great question. I mean, I would say cello, um, honestly, but it um, might be a little late if you're, a, if you're an early career professional. <laughs> it's, it's a fantastic question. So I would say if you're an early career professional or, or a student and you're driven by impact, if that's part of what you're, what you're seeking in your career, I think you need a couple of things. One is, is listening. Just get good at that and get good at thinking about where people come from and meeting them where they're at. We all come from different places, different backgrounds. Fundamentally, it's people that run the global economy. And those are the people that you have to persuade to do something different. So listening and understanding where they're coming from is, is at the root of that and is at the root of persuasion. Yeah. In addition to that, I think it's just fundamentally important to learn how the world works in practice. I myself have chosen to work in academia and in a nonprofit space, but I've accepted that there are a lot of things that I'll never know about how various sectors work. So I have to go and get that information either through hiring or through finding advisors or through conversation. I have been very fortunate though, in the sense that I've been able to spend a lot of time with the industries that I, you know, that we're seeking to influence. So I would say in general, whether you end up on the for-profit side, whether you end up on the, on the nonprofit or academic side, make sure that you're plugged in to the other side, understand how it works and, you know, just, just don't be religious about anything, right? Just, just learn how it works and go from there. And I think if you can do that, you're going to be well-placed, not only to be, have an effective career, but also be able to steer your own career, I think, much more effectively because you understand the general movements of, of what's happening in your field. It reminds me of one of my favorite quotes. The natural tendency of the world forces us to become specialists, and we have to really work to stay generalists. Mm, that's, that's great. I, I love it. I, I really like it. Well, thank you so much for your time, James. This was a pleasure having this conversation with you. Likewise, Jimmy. It was great to talk with you, and uh, I look forward to talking about music more with you very soon. Thank you for listening to the Levers of Exchange podcast, where we share ideas, knowledge, and best practices for achieving a sustainable future. I'm the host, Jimmy Gio, and the music is by Sean Hart. Thanks again to the Skoll Center for Social Entrepreneurship at the Said Business School, Oxford University, for sponsoring Season 3 of this podcast. Please subscribe to our podcast for new episodes and share with a friend. Please visit our website at www.leversofexchange.com for additional episodes, books, and other resources. Thank you again. 
And remember, the clean tech economy will require everyone's participation. How can we exchange ideas today to help you find your role tomorrow?